Don't worry about a thing. Because Atticus Health will make you feel all right. Don't worry about a thing. Because Atticus Health will make you feel all right. If you got a tummy ache or you don't feel right. Or if you have a nasty rash keeping you up at night. Don't worry, don't worry about a thing. Don't worry. Because Atticus Health will make you feel all right. I'm Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. We are broadcasting to you live on Radio Karam from the Karam Karam Swampland, an ancient and beautiful place of, on the eastern Kulin Nation. And it's another wonderful warm night here. And you can probably see us for the first time because we are trying out the new live stream feature. So if you can hear us as well as see us, hello and good evening. And for everyone tuning in at home on the radio a bit more traditionally as always you can text us in the studio on 0493-213-831 and join the conversation sending your questions. My conversation partner this evening is Lisa Gerstman, a design manager at ADCO Constructions, a fourth generation architect with a solid 15 years of experience working in large and small practice, Lisa took a career leap of faith and left the traditional architect role to pursue working for a builder on design and construct projects. This opportunity has enabled her to shift lens, challenge stereotypes, broaden her knowledge and toolkit, and in turn continue advocating for improvements in the industry, both for architects and builders. As a past co-curator of process, Lisa's always questioned, reflected and advocated for discourse. Speaking on the program this evening will provide a platform to reflect on the career transition and continue to drive critical thinking as how we collectively need to improve, to do better, to be better, act better and how we can deliver projects for clients. Lisa is deeply committed to the creation of livable, socially equitable spaces. As a member of the Australian Institute of Architects, she has previously had involvement in the Imagine Committee and the RAP Working Group. Lisa is also a juror on the 2016 and 2017 Victorian Awards and in both the sustainable and regional categories. And in 2011, she travelled to Nepal with Architects Without Frontiers to complete a water construction project. Lisa has a passion for crafting spaces and the intuitive way in which we people use them. That is, the small grain moments. They give her joy. They give me joy too, Lisa. They do. And it's important to find joy in so many different ways. 
it's quite interesting when you read it out loud and go, oh, okay, I, maybe I have done a lot in my career. You have and I really look forward to talking about it because you sort of left the green Elysium fields of architecture that we all joke about and I think you have a very insightful perspective that you'll be able to share with us this evening. I hope so. I mean, I think it's been interesting because I've almost been two years now having taken on this new role and I, I know you asked me to speak last year and I was just I wasn't ready to speak about my experiences. I kind of needed a bit more time to be in the role and to question things with my colleagues. And I finished an emerging leaders training course as part of my work last year. And I was like, I'm not ready to speak about it. And then over the break, I was thinking about, thinking a lot about, you know, my career to date and that actually I was ready to talk about it and ready to share my thoughts. And it, by talking about it as well, gives a bit of a launch pad for other goals and ambitions. And I think that it's really positive to be able to reflect and then think about how to move forward and contribute positively. Absolutely. And how many young architects or other women who are thinking about moving into construction and moving into that space? Yeah. And I think that's also really important is that now that I've gone through that transition, I've done the architect role, I've been the project architect, I've done front end, I've done delivery. I've been a superintendent when I worked for Susanna Waldron. So she was an amazing inspiration and you had her on the podcast. Exactly. I saw, I heard her speak and I was like, oh, she's such an inspiration. And so now that I've gone into build a side and it was a really difficult decision to leave architecture I had to do like pros and cons and you know really understand what this new role was going to offer me and it was a bit of leap of faith because it was going to be so different but now that I've actually been in the role I realize that architect skills are so transferable and valuable and so a lot of what I do every day is very similar to what I used to do in architecture it's just a lot broader so I get more exposure to different types of people. So, you know, I'm site-based at the moment. So I actually get to talk to the subbies and they can teach me how they're, they're building something. I can understand the cost of things and I can work through and assist with making sure things are compliant or that it's on budget. And so it, it's an expansion of what an architect does. And so it's been a really valuable process. And I think it's really important for this, you know, and there is a bit of a chasm between architects and builders. You know, I felt it and knew it when I was an architect and now that I'm a builder, I see it from their perspective. And so the only way that I think I can contribute to solving those issues is by having this new lens and understanding what actually happens on sites. And there's so many things that architects are not aware of and that's okay. But I think that, you know, having an understanding helps us contribute better. You're a real bridge and a real communicator there. It sort of ha- has to be, doesn't it? But look, before, before we... I'm uh, not perfect. Don't think <laughs> I am. I make mistakes too. Every, and we all make mistakes. We all do. And it's only human. Yes. And it's important to say that. Yeah. As, especially in a, the construction process we've mentioned on the program before, that, that contingency and the money you save aside isn't for if, it's for when. Correct. And things come up, surprises come up all the time. But... Fourth generation architect. So I'm really curious, did you have a choice in the matter? I did. No, absolutely did. So my grandfather was an architect and his grandfather before him and then some of his uncles were architects as well. So kind of skipped my my mum's generation and I... I didn't really think about architecture at all. Like when I was at school, I knew my grandpa was an architect and, you know, was surrounded by his house 
growing up, or I should say their house, my grandma and grandpa, um, but I never thought about architecture until – so I, when I finished school, didn't know what I wanted to do. I was that classic, got into arts, had no idea. And then I hated it because it was too much like school and I need to be able to kind of drive how I'm learning, which you can do in architecture, right? Yes, it can be very self-guided. Correct. And so I went and became a ski instructor, went to Canada, just, you know, awesome. didn't, didn't want to study. And then I developed an interest in concrete actually over there. And so then I, when I was over there, I was like, okay, maybe interior design, maybe architecture. And I came back and I had a discussion with my grandpa and my grandma was like, she's going to study architecture. And I was like, all right, fine. And I did. And I loved it. And I found my calling. And then, that, and that's why it was a pretty difficult decision to not, no longer be that architect because I felt like I was doing a disservice to my family in some ways. But then I thought about it more deeply and I was like, well, the traditional architect was involved in costs in building. And so for me now, I'm probably doing more what the traditional architect did. Yeah, absolutely. Christopher Wren was the first master builder, really. He was hiring all the trades, paying all the subcontractors, standing there on site with a measuring staff. And understanding how buildings get built. And I think that is the one thing that I would kind of tell anybody who's studying and, and, you know, it's in part a bit of a criticism of the university system is that – and Peter Corrigan taught me you need to understand how something's going to get built and it's incredibly important and I think that more architects need to be more curious about how things get built so that they can better do their job. And spend time on site and push to spend time on site, yes. especially as a student, as a grad. 100%. Yeah, big, big tips for the listeners tuning in tonight. Lisa's a wealth of knowledge, so please message and ask, ask your questions because this is a rare opportunity tonight, listeners, to hear from someone that's been in both camps mm. and can, continues to, to, find, to find those moments and opportunities. Go, going back to the first question I like to ask all my guests. I knew this question was coming. I thought <laughs> you'd jump into it straight away, but yes. I've already to- talked about, about it a little bit, so yeah. I'm wondering what's your earliest memory of a building or place? So it's my grandparents' house. So they had a two-acre block in Doncaster and it had all these lemon trees, which we went and picked the lemons, and it had this house that was designed and partly built by my grandpa, but it grew over time. So like it was a mi- like a mishmash of so many different styles because he was just like, I think in some ways he was experimenting. And so there was, you know, different entrances and we'd play there as kids. And I've got so many amazing memories of like running around and they had all these weird and wonderful things that we got to explore and experience. And I have, yeah, very strong memories of that as a house because it's, you know, sentimental, but also it's made me, like we talk about it all the time amongst the family, but it makes me think about how he used to think as well. And like there was this teeny tiny kitchen, which I look back on now and go, it's so so 50s and it wasn't big enough for my grandma to cook. But also had this really wildly random red bathtub that was like round and deep and it had these like stairs that went up to it. So it was like so wild. And I, I always think about that, like just experimenting with, colour and difference and levels and like that those sorts of things are, are fun and joyful but also that they create memory. That's so fabulous and so many architects are known for experimenting with their own home as a laboratory mm. and sometimes it gets a bit mad and gets a bit it was mad. mad. Yeah. 
of red bathtub with a step up that does it still exist? No, it, they they sold and a developer bought it. Um, but I have, you know, there was quite a modernist vibe to it. And then it was interesting because in his life he had, they liked modernity early on, but as they got older, they became more traditional, uh-huh. which is always a kind of interesting thing about how people's tastes and, you know, tastes change over time. And it maybe was a bit of an experimentative phase or like a bit of a fad that probably was, was there a crazy creative license there? Probably. Was it photo documented? I think I took photos at some point, but I could, I've never been able to find them. So I don't know. It's hard when things are so close to you, you forget to capture it sometimes. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. I want to ask about process loop. Yes. <laughs> many, many years you, you were uh, the stalwart, the head uh, curator and, and running and hosting. For our listeners, what was process? So process or is was a monthly speaker series that was hosted on every the first Monday of every month at Loop Bar and it was a partnership with them and essentially what it was is a platform for people to come on board and take ownership of the curation of events that related to architecture and allied fields. And so the premise of it changed over time and whoever was curating it changed over time so you you basically handed it over to the next generation and so it created this incredible opportunity for networking but also you know curation of events around topics that were prevalent at the time so you know it was it could be political it could be about art it could be about I mean we we ran an event at M Pavilion about whether Melbourne needed star architecture and it was in the OMA Pavilion yes and so and I think that's how we met as well. I think so. I used to regularly go to process, especially before the pandemic. Yes. Loved loved the regular attendance. And everyone came. It was yeah. students, it was graduates, it was established professionals. It's it was an amazing place for architectural discourse. And, you know, I think when you meet amongst your peers and you unpack issues that are affecting the profession or individuals. It's a way of forming connections but also kind of, you know, realising that we're not siloed. And so that's probably one thing at the time I wish I'd invited more builders to come speak mm. because I think that architecture can become quite siloed, like architects talk to architects and then yes. we get architects speak and then it's like it's not actually a benefit because at the same time like we're all here to contribute in a positive way through design, through buildings and you know, I think that's been the biggest benefit of my career transition is to look at things differently. I totally agree with you that ArchiSpeak has failed us. (laughs) It really has not uh, (laughs) taken the profession to where we want to go. That's why it's banned on this program and we're in plain language. Yeah. As far as I know, the only plain language radio show, live radio show and, and podcast about architecture. Which is good. And I think that's really healthy. And that's one thing that even now, like now I've got builder mates and we talk about stuff that's completely different to what I would have spoken about with Archimates. And I think that's so enriching because you realise, you know, when you're designing for people who are going to be the end user, when you take yourself out of that architect role, you see it from a different perspective. And I think that's really important because architects, we provide a service. It's a service-based industry. And I think sometimes the way we're taught at university and, you know, 
registration is about consumer pr- protection. Yeah. But I think sometimes the ideas that are entrenched in us through practice, through university, I, I think it loses that perspective of at the end of the day, these are places and spaces for people, for them to take ownership of. And it, you need to bring them along on the journey. You really do. Uh, otherwise, you forget who it's for. And you can get really caught up and it's so important to look mm. outside of yourself, look outside of your industry, find someone else to talk to like this, this other, this, this third. Mm. But uh, to, look, to look outwards in that way. I want to ask what's a favourite moment of process or one of your most memorable evenings? I don't think I have a most memorable evening or moment because it – well, all your babies. It, well, no, it also becomes quite blurred. Mm. So I think part of when I left the role and I loved it, like it was an incredible opportunity, you know, I loved running the events, but it also took a lot of time out of my personal life. Mm. And so, you know, I think I was spending about 10 hours a week at one point. Oh, goodness. Which is a lot of time. It's a part-time job. Exactly. (laughs) And so by the end of it, I was like, I'm tapped out. And so I actually had took a break from, you know, industry events and getting involved and saying yes to things because I was like – well, I've given a lot mm. and now it's time for me to invest in other hobbies and other things that will bring me joy or will help me grow professionally or personally. So no one event, sorry, <laughs> segue to be No, no one favourite. Although that, that, that's <laughs> fair enough, especially it was many years that you were involved. Three and a half years. Three and a half years. Or maybe four. Ask me that question when I get to three and a half well, years exactly. on this program, and, and we'll see. We'll see which which you out of there I can draw. I do do it yeah. weekly. You're my thirty fourth guest now, C- consecutive. But I, I might share one of my uh, memories of process. One of the Please. I think best evenings was the Victorian Pride Centre competition had oh, just yes. been awarded, yes. and the bar was filled to the brim, people were busting out the door mm. and a lot of architects have been left out of the competition and locked out of the competition. It's, it's controversial. Very, it's very controversial, very exclusive two-stage competition, locked out a lot of women, locked yeah. out a lot of young people, locked out a lot of queer architects, yes. locked out a lot of emerging establishing firms and so architects formed syndicates to enter that competition and many were very upset in the end and mm. wanted answers about the winning design and that was a powerful night. That oh, a, I'm so, yeah, that I'm was a so powerful glad night. Yeah. that that was something that resonated with you because that's why I did it and other people did it. It's was providing a space for people to connect to issues or be heard and feel heard and like we were always very much trying to get the, you know, the audience to speak because – and that's the thing. It wasn't about us. It was about everyone else, the speakers, you know, people who, who resonated with the content and wanted that space to – I don't know, get involved. Yeah. That's good. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. That was an important one because I think there were so many feelings across the industry mm. where once a building gets built and commissioned and everyone loves it and photographed, they, they forget about the procurement process and what yeah. actually happened and those moments. And I'm, and I'm sure some people are still, still hurting from that question. But mm. um, it did a lot of good to also have that, that opportunity. Cathartic. To, yeah, cathartic to have that opportunity to speak. So, listeners, also, you can always text us if you want any of your catharsis <laughs> read out on the air. But speaking of catharsis, how do you come to the place where you decide, run, I'm ready to step away from big practice and uh, the conventional, traditional architect's life 
especially one essentially is quite high profile as yours because every single month you were hosting process, you were there, every single event you were there. And how, how does that moment emerge for you? I think I just got really exhausted, <laughs> to be honest. And I think I stopped being as passionate. And I think when you, your passion is not there, I think it's time to let somebody else have that opportunity to curate and create space for themselves. And it was really nice as well when I saw that, you know, I w- would still go to events, but I could see other people taking on that role and then they were growing and they were, you know, it was nourishing for them and that was really wonderful to see. And that's the thing is all of those events, they, they, they're not recorded per se, so people can speak quite openly, mm. but it, it's about essentially creating the space for people to be able to contribute. And so that was, yeah, I, I had to leave at one point. I was like, I'm doing too much. And the thing is as well is it can lead to burnout too. For sure. And so I've definitely learned that lesson now is that I have to kind of manage how much I take on so that I don't, you know, I'm not too stretched and I'm not doing anything badly. That's really important thing I think for everyone to consider and to not have any shame about that. Yeah, absolutely. Because you have to love yourself before you can love architecture really. It, yes. If you don't, it's not going to love you in the replacement of it. No, and I also think too that anybody who's working in architecture right now needs to understand that it is a job and it can't become this all-encompassing thing that, you know, describes your entire life. Because you look back when you're, you know, 60, you know, you don't remember all of these projects and like you remember the projects but you remember the people that you work with and the experiences that you had on the way. Yeah, and how they made you feel. You know, you can't hinge your whole identity around architecture or your profession either. 100%. And that's it. that's applicable to anyone. Yeah. Nobody on their deathbed says, oh, I wish I worked more. Exactly. Exactly. But there's also ways to, in parallel, be involved in architecture like this radio show, like Process mm. Was, to, to nourish it perhaps in tandem. Yes. F- for people. So you made the move. You took, you took the leap. Was it scary? wasn't scary. I was very structured in the way that I approached it. So I, I sat down and I did like an analysis of working with Susanna and working on these incredible projects and this incredible team who I loved and then this opportunity and what that could lead for me in my career. And the deciding factor for me actually was um, the owner of ADCO Constructions, full owner, she's female, so Judy Brinsmead. And she is incredibly successful in the way that she runs the company. And I don't know any other tier two builder, which is fully run by a female. I had no idea. It's, she's incredible. She's a unicorn. That's the only way I can describe her. Wow. And she, I, I believe, has completely shifted the narrative of what it is to run a construction company because she leads in a way that is true to who she, who she is and her values and, you know, it's the culture of the company is a representation of what she advocates for. Um, so she was my deciding factor for yeah, right. making wow. the jump. And she is super fascinating because she's actually – her role is chairman. And so she doesn't actually assign any gender to that role. She, she's taken on the role. And so, like, we have four men in the company who are female. And it's not about gender – Spe- like specificity about the term it's about doing the job or the role 
And I think that's incredibly bold and inspiring. And so she was the reason I <laughs> came to ADCO. Wow. So straight in because when – I'm finding this more and more. We, we learn about it from some of the research that comes out of the construction sector mm. that about 30% of the Australian population is either directly employed or directly affected by the construction sector. And that when women are involved in leadership, the well-being outcomes for the whole organisation and therefore their site, their team, the subcontractors is better. Ah. See, that, that makes sense. We're seeing, we're seeing that more and more. And are you part of a big team? Yourself, a lot of a lot of design managers, a lot of architects who have come over, or there are a lot of architects do make the shift into construction. I'm part of what is a design team, so I work with other design managers, design coordinators, services managers, and services coordinators. So that's my team, but I actually work on. I'm currently working on three construction sites, so I'm site based, which is amazing experience for me. And so I move around teams, and so I get a really great exposure to what are all the roles on sites and how they operate a bit differently and it's quite it, it's quite nimble because it kind of has to be because you have to do whatever you need to do to get the job done basically and so my role it's in some on some projects it's a specific thing but I can also adapt depending on the project which is architecture right yes you adapt <laughs> yeah and that ability to pivot and shift and deal with whatever problem is coming on the day mm. And that's what we do. transferable skill. We, we're problem solvers. And so, you know, I've had a lot of exposure now to how architects work at different practices because I've worked on different projects. And that's a fascinating bit of insight as well to see how architects operate, but from what is our client side. Um, but also, you know, how builders perceive architects. And so I am, you know, trying to like we're effectively an in-house architect for the builder and in some ways that's a good thing because my role has come out of that and I get that opportunity but I think it speaks to some of the realities about what is actually happening in the profession and what's what the role is well it's effectively diminishing right what do the builders think of us right now some frustrations but there's frustrations from the architect as well it's and it's equal frustration and it, there's different there's different quality in which each architect works and there's inconsistency which I think I don't know why architecture I don't know why every practice wants to redesign how they document <laughs> have consistent drawing series have like consistent consistency of documentation and coordination but that yeah, that's a bigger discussion. <laughs> and there's so many ways to skin that cat. Exactly, exactly. And I think the thing is, is that the biggest thing to remember is there's a lot of similarities between what an architect does and what a builder does. And so we need to work together because we all want the same outcome. We all want to get, get a really good project built. And I think there needs to be more communication, more transparency, more ownership of mistakes to say, I messed up there, but that's okay. I think architects, we're, we're easy to criticise other people, but don't take criticism particularly well. And are these mostly DNC contracts, yes. design and construct? Yes, yes. I wonder if the atmosphere might be more collaborative and less combative in, say, an alliance. I think it needs to. And I think communication and working on those personal relationships is crucial. And I think also 
it has to be about solving problems. There's this problem here. These are our potential solutions and everyone works together to get a solution. I think that's that's the only way that it needs – it has to work. And it is interesting too because, you know, I, I went to one of our architects who – best architect that I'm working with at the moment. You ask them a question, respond straight away. And it's always that they're helping and it's easy and it's it's excellent. And I went because I we had a budget problem with um, one of our packages and it was straight away like – ownership of like well we've got an issue here can you help us with this and I think the more that we actually discuss that there's an issue here and are transparent about that and get everyone on board we get to solutions and get a better outcome for the clients as well absolutely I I like to ask questions about procurement and, and contracts sometimes because I do feel that if the contract was better and the contract actually encouraged that collaboration yeah and the shared success and working towards problem solving, then so many of the frustrations and disagreements yeah. and budget issues could be eliminated. Yeah, I think contracts is a big discussion. What I'll say on that point is that there's been so much change in the industry the last couple of years. Like for, for builders, it's been a profitless boom. And, you know, what other industry is it that you are, are tied into a fixed price and the amount of escalation that has occurred has just meant that costs, you know, builders can't always absorb. Yeah. And then a lot of builders have been going under. A lot. A lot of uh, especially spec house builders yeah. locally have been going under. And subbies. And that's not good for the industry. No. And so contracts as a whole need to be a lot the, – the risk needs to be shared more evenly. And I think once that is kind of more fair – I think it'll be easier. Sounding more and more like an alliance there. Exactly. Yeah, it's a good word. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that one on. Yeah, alliancing, alliance contracting. And yeah. in Australia, we have the particular style of Australian style alliancing. Well, any advice, any tips to any listeners this evening who are thinking of jumping over to be a design manager or going client side, going to work as an architect in, in-house somewhere other than a firm? I think if you want the challenge and you want to learn more about yourself and how you want to contribute in the way that is aligned to your values, I think definitely do it. Um, I've had nothing but exceptional and profound growth in taking this step and it's been personally really rewarding. I think that, and this is probably on a more personal note, is that, you know, no matter where people go in their careers – it's important to understand what your values are, what your goals and ambitions are as a framework so that you're not just reacting to what you're being given. You basically can set a pathway for yourself. And I think that having those metrics and understanding for your own personal self Mm -hmm. what you're wanting to get out of anything, I think it's really critical. We spend so much time designing things for others and enough time designing our own lives. 100%. And designing things for ourselves and questioning those values. And design comes into anything that we touch. It's, you know, how you, what you wear, how you design your life. It's a creative kind of output or outlet that people can take and do for themselves. And it's incredibly important, what I believe. You mentioned values. I want to circle back to your chairperson. Chairman. Chairman. Of, so autopilot, 
of chairperson. We're adapting to these terms. Your chairman of ADCO, you said it was the values that won you over and that really made you feel confident in your decision to come across. What were some of those values? Well, it's interesting because I didn't know the values until I started working on personal growth. So last year I went through a breakup and – any breakup is the greatest opportunity for personal growth. And so I like really dug deep and, you know, asked myself a lot of questions. I did a breakup course. That's a thing. <laughs> cool. And so it's understanding what your values are, like what anchors you in life, like what are the things that really serve you. And so I didn't actually know the values of ADCO until I, I, w- I was working out my value system and then I was trying to understand what their value system was to see how it aligned. If that makes any sense. I want to know more. Well, what, what is this alignment? Well, what, what, are the, what are the core ideas that are driving you well, and f- are driving the company? Yeah. Well, my core values are growth, self-expression, joy, communication and connection. You've thought about this very eloquently. I have. Lisa. It's very good. <laughs> I think it's important to understand that. And now I have many conversations with friends and even mentees to say, well, what are your values? Because it took me until this age to work it out. So I'm like, you can benefit from that information now. Sure. Um, The values of the company are there's family values. Um, It's also that they, they really value investment in people's training. So I've had the most amount of training at ADCO than I've probably had in my entire career wow which is it's pretty wild it says a lot because we have to study for so long and then do a three-part exam Mm. it takes so unbelievably long time minimum seven years to become an architect a registered architect in your state that for you to say then that the construction industry rather the builder side construction space provided that most support they invest in their people. Mm-hmm. So they – and that's that's in contrast to I think how architecture practices operate. Yeah. Because your people are the ones, ones who deliver. And if you want to deliver well, your people need to be, you know, nurtured. And so, you know, they, they run all their things which – there's something called ADCO Balance where it's like an app and there's things that you can sign up to and I've, I've signed up to a – corporate try i did a um did a bike ride i did a bike ride (laughs) they have a good kit it's good good to talk with a fellow cyclist as well (laughs) well and this is the other thing too on that bike ride i signed up for the 35 kilometers because i was like i don't know if i can do 55 kilometers and then halfway through and everyone was like yeah you can do it and i just ended up doing 55 kilometers sounds like your growth value exactly or yeah and challenge (laughs) and why not through challenge, you actually push yourself to the limits to, you know, see how much you can adapt and change. What's what's the secret to innovation, do you think, from your experience being able to sort of look at both sides? I think innovation, I would probably re-label that to change. And I think there needs to be a shift in how people have a bit of an immunity to change because innovation will occur in both the way we 
use technologies and the way that we um, have to continually rethink about how things are done. But I think the shift in the way people don't want to adapt to change, I think that's a premise that needs to kind of be fixed a little bit for innovation to grow. And so like a good example of that is we're rolling out a software package um, uh, around the nation, all of our chapters, and you get technology. Like I yeah. was I was late to learn Revit, but I learned it because I didn't want to become a dinosaur basically. Yeah. And everyone was like, you need to learn Revit. You've so got to I keep did. up, yeah. Exactly. You've got to keep up. You've got to keep learning and growing and be elastic. And so now it's really interesting because people are like, oh, how do you fix this, Lisa? And I'm like, tech support. I'm like, this is so weird because I was not this in architecture. <laughs> you're a tech support. You're a cyclist. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite funny though. But it's really joyful actually. Things that are like quite easy for us, you know, panning or like things that we've just known because it's just been a part of how you practice architecture. I'm now like teaching people how to like cut a section in a 3D model and they're like, oh, wow. I'm like, yeah, I guess this is completely new to you. This is good. Builders <laughs> are going to check shop drawings before they send it to us. I heard you say that on a different podcast actually. I know. Can you hear the trauma in my voice? <laughs> well, I can hear the trauma and I can, I can also th- – think that there's more to the story yeah because I don't know I I probably have more empathy now having seen also how my colleagues are dealing with subcontractors and like they're not updating things the way we want it to be done and you just it's it's a really like I think there needs to be more empathy between the architect and the builder Mm. and consideration of actually we might be dealing with the same problem or they're dealing with all of this other stuff that you're not even aware of that's a really good universal point and it really for, even for architects to keep in mind like when we're designing, when we're doing stakeholder consultation, we're working with people, have that empathy and remember mm. who that building's for, why they need that building, why we're even bothering with all of this, <laughs> like what's the point? And we're all just people, right? Yes. And like you could be really stressed because of X, Y, Z that you're and you might not have been given the time or like you actually might be on three projects and so, you know, that stress does manifest in ways of, you know, affecting how you do your job. That's back to my procurement point, Lisa. <laughs> there might be hope if we fix the procurement. <laughs> I've got um, two, two sort of favourite hills to die on there and it's procurement and intention. So talk to me about intention. I always feel that if you can get the main intention bef- behind a project right, mm-hmm. why are you doing this? Mm. Is it to make profit? Probably not going to turn out very well. Is it to give the community an amazing place and a space and something they really need and they can make their own? Is it to make people happier, healthier? Like what, what is the intention behind the projects? And if you can get that right, then the rest of the building will work out. Sure, the budget will be difficult. Yes, we'll have mm. escalation, but we can work through that. And it helps architects and design teams keep perspective, but it helps clients keep perspective too. Mm. And then with that strong intention, you can get the whole team on board, all your sub-consultants and also the trades, the subbies, people you're working with on side doing contract admin when you're actually delivering that project to remind people, hey, this is a kindergarten. This is for the children. Yeah. They really need this. There's been no one, there's been nowhere to enroll kids for the last 15 kilometres. We, commu- we need this kindergarten. We need this community centre. Like, well, that's the powerful idea and intention behind yeah, the project. Yeah, I agree with that get that right and you're going to have a good outcome. 
And also it helps get alignment back when things are, you know, spiralling or people are getting hyper-focused on finish or a detail that maybe doesn't actually matter. Maybe it's not important. <laughs> like maybe it doesn't actually have to be that colour. Yeah. If it's out of stock, it's out of stock. What are we going to do? So how do you action that in the day-to-day? I have to remind myself of the intention. I have to remind myself of what it's for, who that building is for. I'm working in a lot of major, major public health at the moment and I always keeping the patients in the forefront of my, of my mind and the model of care as well as the staff and often in public health safety is a really big issue so making yeah, sure is. that the staff are safe and their occupational working environment is safe and okay and keeping keeping that at the heart of the decision making yeah do you then share that with your colleagues or you, any trade partners or consultants i try <laughs> i really try whenever i can um, it's, it's often when it's when it's for children, you can make a much more emotional plea mm. about uh, who that end user is there, and it's particularly in order when you're working on school projects mm. and you're trying to get all your subconsultants and get all the engineers thinking the same way that you are, which is what's important. Like let's find these solutions yeah. so that these people can benefit. Yes, and that's what good architecture is. I think. I think so too, and I think the fact that you've become aware of that's a really important value or approach that you know means that you can be authentic in the way that you practice architecture I think that's a really important skill and I think um you know it's also really important to share that and help lift others so I'm happy to hear that that's what you're doing as you know from working in all sorts of practices that everyone is different right not not all of our colleagues are necessarily going to think the same way but that authenticity is important, isn't it? Really remembering who you are and why you're doing it. Yeah. And I think I've had many conversations with friends recently about this and it's in part what I've experienced the last eight months or something that I need to speak my truth and I need to be who I am and I need to be able to be in a space where I can be safe to be me. Mm -hmm. And that once I have that in the right kind of you know, right for me, it means that I can actually operate better. And it's been a really positive thing to see for myself is that if I'm doing that, I'm doing the right thing and I'm doing the right thing to feed my positivity and my energy and and everything, then I'm more efficient at work. I can think more clearly. I can do things that align to my values. And that's probably my advice for anyone is and I've probably I, I don't know if I learned it as an outcome of getting out of architecture but you have to be yourself and be authentic because otherwise it will be forced mm. and it causes moral injury that a lot of people don't actually think about and we maybe consider other professions as victims of moral injury like teachers mm. and doctors and nurses mm. when they're forced to do things they disagree with or don't want to do but we have such a big responsibility we are bringing things into existence that weren't real before. Yeah. That's why the Architects Act is consumer protection. Yes. Because we're making things real. And if you're not in your values. Yeah. Such a dangerous space. So you mentioned work-life balance. I want to talk about how's the construction industry dealing with stress, dealing with high pressure? What's what's it like? I mean, it's pretty stressful in the industry. There's a statistic, I think, that says that 
either somebody in the construction industry or associated with somebody in the industry. One person, I think it either, and I probably should fact check this. Oops. One person dies per week. That's a pretty... It's a horrifying stat. It's a horrifying statistic. And I see it now too in the way that safety is a huge, huge issue on sites. And because sites change every day, and so like they they are very, very, you know, regimented about safety and, you know, they do safety alerts and they, you know... Toolbox meetings. Yeah, and it, but it's also the way that they do everything on the site is it has to be about safety because it is. It's... You want to come home. It's just a job. You need to come home at the end of the day. Exactly. And so I think there's there's the element of, you know, a workplace where you're prone to accidents and issues because of just the nature of the work, high-risk workplace. But there's also the pressure and the stress associated with trying to deliver on time with quality and then there's a myriad of things that play into that. Now that I'm, I'm at the cold face and I see it, I go, oh, yeah, okay. Like, you know, there's been lots of rain recently. Yeah. So you lose days for work. There's just these factors that it does affect stress. But I've also seen in architecture how it's affected people's stress. And, you know, that is a huge issue as well. So I think it's construction and that's why it comes back to the contracts and fairness. And procurement, better procurement practice. Also just contracts where... It's, it's fairer. Yeah. How many working days a week does ADCO run at the moment? It depends. So we do we do Saturdays when because um, we we don't work the RDOs. So there's the six day work week, um, but it, it depends on RDOs. But like one of our sites recently, they were doing night shift, and like when they have to, they will do night shift. Um, but it's it's pretty variable. Wow. That's full on. I mean, we work some crazy hours in architecture, but I, if you can imagine having to also do night shift. Yeah, that was only um, weekends for a short term. But that's, you know, that's when you have to, do, like, when I say night shift, it doesn't go all overnight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's variable. Of course. Um, but I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of, pre- and this is why I'm so passionate about breaking down those barriers between an architect and a builder is when builders work long hours and they just need assistance with something, an architect does need to come in and say, all right, I understand you've got this problem. This is the potential solutions. Instead of, you know, sometimes some architects that I work with will get, they'll latch onto what was designed and they get very hyper-focused on that. Mm. And it's sometimes that lens, they need to scale out and go look at the bigger picture of, we're needing to deliver for a client and that client might not care about that and sometimes they don't. And so at the end of the day, it comes back to who are we doing this for? Yeah. It is for them. What's the intention behind that project? Mm. What's the number one thing you wish architects would know about builders and the other number one thing you wish that builders would know about architects? It's a good question. Um... One thing that I wish architects knew is that I think they forget that there's this whole other part of what builders do that they're not exposed to and so they are only seeing it from this kind of very 
you know, small laneway. And so you might want to take, like, if you can, you, you try and explain things, but sometimes you don't have time. Like, this is the other thing too. You see, that's one thing is construction moves really fast. And I had to unlearn my perfectionism because you can't, you have to be continually moving forwards. And if you're not moving forwards, even if you make a mistake, it's fine because you have to continually move forwards. And it moves so fast that sometimes when an architect, and I used to do it as well, you oscillate over something, you're like, oh, it has to be like this. The decision is sometimes gone because it's taken too long. Yes. So actually 80% is okay. And actually if we want to, as architects, contribute more and have more of an influence, we've got to keep up with that pace. And we also need to be responding in a way that moves things forward. Good is better than perfect. 100%. And done is better than perfect. 100%. Like it's better to be there than a week late. And my, my newest saying is progress is perfection. Mm. It is. So back to your other question. So what do I wish that builders knew about architects? I mean, I probably tell my colleagues stuff all the time. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I <I'm> hope <just> so. <laughs> well, I, yeah. I mean, I did a lot of ad- advocacy work, so I've yeah. always felt like I need to. Um, I think I think that I'd want them to understand that generally speaking, most architects want to be able to contribute in a positive way. And the training doesn't always foster probably the the best um, approaches or ways of doing. Mm. And, you know, that's probably architecture needs to get better at this is being less critical and being a bit more aware that architects are only one player as part of a bigger pool. You know, like there's so many people that contribute to projects getting finished and I think an awareness of that is really important. I don't know if I just gave the architects two things and none to the builder. (laughs) (laughs) You might have but a more more, more collaborative mindset is what I'm hearing something we all need to take on and approach. I'm mindful of the time and I really want to ask about your trip to Nepal because I've absolutely loved Nepal. I love the Himalaya. And how was that with Architects Without Frontiers? It was actually incredible. It was an incredible project and I'm so glad I went. How long were you there for? I think we were there for a month or six weeks. No, it must have been a month. Yeah, it was a month. So it was – I went with two mates from uni And we actually had a group of people that were, some were engineers and some were architects. And so it was this water construction project where we had to um, basically introduce a hydraulic ram to basically get water up to a school. So this school had no running water and they had no way of like washing your hands when you came out of the bathrooms. And so it's, it's, an incredible organisation. I actually went to Vietnam with them as well, but on a completely separate trip that wasn't architecture related. Incredible organisation, OzQuest it's called, and they partner with Architects Without Frontiers. And so this project, we actually worked with local tradespeople and they did like a drywall and then we covered it in concrete and we put like a little roof. So we got to design that and it was like seating 
and places for people to like meet and greet and contemplate. And like we designed it in a way that they could build it but also they took ownership of it which was the, the best thing about it is they had these people, they had this, um, he was a deaf tradesman and he was there building it and he was mixing the concrete and that was really joyful to see and the way that, you know, it was a project for them. And I think, I mean, this happens, but the, the ram didn't work when we were there, but they went and replaced it either a couple of months later or something. But the lesson was that, you know, you've got to try and lead with kindness and you've got to try and contribute, but also, you know, architecture, it, it wasn't about this amazing architecture. It wasn't about, you know, us creating and designing. It was that this was of benefit to their community and that they would take ownership of it long-term. And empowering people, empowering that community. Yeah, and for them to feel heard and that their needs were recognised, I think that was also really important. And it's funny because I could go back and do, like I could be the, the guide, but I've never gone back because I just, sometimes I'm like, I've done that, I need to move on to something else. But it was an amazing, amazing trip. I think they're still running them actually. So people can sign up if they want to volunteer for Architects Without Frontiers? I think so, yeah. Fabulous. What, a, what, a, what an amazing place and Nepal is a, is a really incredible place. Mm. Where do you think architecture is going? I know that construction comes after design so maybe it doesn't quite give you this magic ball opportunity <laughs> but maybe the perspective is giving you a bit of a spidey sense of where we're headed. I think that the the best thing that could happen for and, you know, the hope that I have for the industry both architecture and construction is that, you know, there's more early contractor involvement because the thing is you've got to remember when we tender and we're up against a number of builders, you only have, you know, a limited time to actually price it. And so like, you know, you get told, can you document this building in six weeks? That's not a lot of time. And so like we get told to price a building in six weeks. That's not a lot of time. Whereas if you have an early contractor involvement, it's of benefit to both people. You, you build the relationship but also you build the trust because, you know, you, you might say to me, the most important part in this project is how this finish works with this detailing and it's because of this agenda and the intention. And then we go, okay, we understand that. We'll make sure that we price that properly. And so, you know, we can understand what the gaps are and then you guys can actually document the things that are important and we can also work out how we can build it. Yeah, so and more efficiently sometimes too. We've actually discussed ECIs on this program but they're coming into the residential space as well mm. and getting that ECI involvement trying to pick a builder early throughout the design process, using them to essentially continue checking in for cost mm. in lieu of a QS and then if all the expectations align at the end, you proceed and you, you head into construction. And that's actually really healthy because you know each other, you know you know the limitations and the expertise, but also it helps architects to document. So I think that's a benefit. It's my hope that as we do more ECIs, maybe, let's manifest them, that <laughs> manifest you can document less as yeah. well yeah, because you don't need to chew the fat so much on standard common or just Australian standard compliant details. 
compromise is important. <laughs> I think it needs to be about efficiency. Yeah. And efficiency is only improved when we've redesigned something in a way to go, all right, well, that's not working, but what is working? How do we make this more efficient? And I'm really passionate about efficiency because, you know, that's the only way that you get space to do other things is if you make something really efficient, but also create less work for yourself. That's how you get work-life balance is actually being more efficient about what you're actually doing. Totally. And we don't talk about that enough because that's also the only way you're going to send out your invoices and run a successful architecture practice. Absolutely. Rachel Bernstone's come onto the program and talked about her her concept and her theory of architecture 2.0 and the idea of doing architecture differently, doing business differently, offering services differently. And I think throughout all my guests on on the program last year, this year, we're really getting to this place where the traditional way of doing something, A plus B plus C, as you say, is not working. Mm. Just leaves everybody miserable (laughs) and stressed and frustrated. Absolutely. And it's a design challenge, right? Yeah. And I think that if we want to do better and we want to act better and we want to contribute better, we have to innovate and question well, if that's not working, we have to do it in a different way. Treat everything as a design challenge. Sounds like you've, you've done that and you've done that for your whole career, Lisa. <laughs> so I want to wrap up. I'm really mindful of the time. I want to ask my final question. And what gives you hope? I think people give me hope. I think if you know yourself and you know what you want to be achieving in your own life, and you're connecting with good people, like this has been a really wonderful exchange. And I think if you, you know, spend time with good people and like-minded individuals with an agenda to improve and to contribute in a positive way, I think that gives me hope. And there's hope as well in challenging. And I I did this a lot with process is I liked to challenge you know, preconceived ideas and go, why do you think that way or is that serving you? And so I think people give me hope. Mm. Is that serving us? Well, that's an excellent closing idea and thought to leave us and listeners on and to com- contemplate as we move into the rest of this year. Thank you so much for this. Thanks so much for joining me, Lisa. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Karim studio on Bonarong Country. You can replay this show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care.